Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Committee for Justice. Oh, okay. Doug, do you do you want to tell us a little bit about your new assignments? All right. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to uh, announce that I just recently joined the Committee for Justice, um, where I'm going to be focused on antitrust policy and economic regulation and uh, uh, working on my first op-ed that we hope to get released uh, in the next uh, next few days, as well as uh, be speaking at an upcoming uh, conference, of course, on antitrust. Um uh, at the end of the month in uh, in Washington D.C., so uh, really looking forward to it. Okay, and the commit just for clarity, the Committee of Justice not related to the Justice League. But, That's what uh, you say. I, I'm actually lobbying that we all start wearing uh, leotards with capes. Okay, all right. Well, moving right along, our guest today, uh, who has been patiently uh, enduring all of that, is uh, Caleb Watney. My former colleague at R Street, now the co-founder of a new think tank, the Institute for Progress. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks for having me on. Good to join you guys. Okay. So uh, I'm a little on the fence about progress, so uh, you'll have to win me over. But what is this? (laughs) What is the Institute for Progress? What is this thing here? The Institute for Progress is a new um, nonprofit think tank uh, started, uh, launched publicly in January, although my co-founder Alec and I have been working on it full time since about August. Um, But we are a think tank um, focused on a wide range of sort of technology, science and innovation type issues. Um, In particular, the three that we're sort of starting off with are meta science, which is sort of this issue of the science of science, basically, how do you change the way that the federal government funds science such that you can get more breakthrough uh, research? I think there's a lot of concerning trends in science today that we could potentially uh, change. We can get more experimentation, more diversification if we think a bit more critically, um, if we you know, apply the scientific method to the way that we fund science. So that's kind of uh, issue one. Issue two is immigration and a special focus on high-skilled immigration. How can we make it easier for scientists, engineers, mathematicians, supply chain managers, um, all the sort of global uh, talent uh, to be able to come and live in the United States and push out the technological frontier here? And then finally, um, biosecurity, which is kind of both a combination of how do we prevent future pandemics? Uh, COVID-19 has been extremely uh, costly. And if we could prevent another pandemic, that would be uh, really important. But also, I think the pandemic has revealed a number of low-hanging fruits in the field of biology that we're sort of excited to pick. And I think mRNA vaccines are maybe like a good example of this. It seems quite plausible to me that we could have had mRNA vaccines a decade ago if we had a sort of a similar burst of funding and urgency. And so we're kind of excited to see what other kinds of low-hanging fruit, what else is waiting on the proverbial shelf. What distinguishes you as a think tank? How will you be different than than other organizations? And I, I think one that maybe comes from to mind um, is the Niskanen Center, which sort of prides itself as being a centrist organization. And and you cleverly have all in your Twitter bios have taken or using purples, which I think is meant to mean a, a blend, <laughs> blend blue. So what what distinguishes you? Yeah, good question. Um, we, I think you could distinguish us from more traditional think tanks on a number of dimensions. 
Um, first, we are trying to focus on maybe a different set of issues than traditional think tanks um, focus on. We're, we're very specifically trying to focus on issues that we think are uh, more neglected in the traditional think tank space. So, for example, you know, meta science. There's not really a lot of organizations that are really trying to drill down specifically into uh, the question of how do you structure federal funding of science so that it can be more effective, so you'd be getting more breakthrough research. Similarly, there's a lot of immigration groups, but there's actually surprisingly not that many groups uh, that are really sort of uh, centrally focused on high-skilled immigration and trying to make it easier for uh, the world's top scientists to be able to come to the United States. Um, another differentiator is that um, we're trying to be a bit... Uh, I guess we're trying to represent a couple of communities that don't really have traditional representation in DC. Um, the first being sort of this progress studies community that's popped up over the last couple of years and by which we take our name, uh, which is really focused to kind of this, this interdisciplinary study of how do we engineer more project, uh, more progress in the United States and what are the institutions that are necessary for that. Um, and then the other being effective altruism, um, which is sort of how can we do the most good with both our time and uh, funding and, um, we think that there's a, a lot of overlap between those two communities, but there were not really think tanks in DC that were kind of trying to pull from and in some sense represent those communities um, in DC. So there's a couple of the ways in which we are different. Maybe you could uh, elaborate a little bit on effective altruism, what that is as a, as a movement. Right. So effective altruism, uh, again, a sort of more recent uh, movement, probably in the last you know, 10, 15 years or so. Um, but as I said, they're very focused on trying to do, you know, the best you can with your time and funding. And so it kind of, I think, really came to uh, light originally with a strong focus on international development aid and saying that, you know, there's a there's a lot of ways in which we might be able to help out the developing world, whether it's, you know, giving um farm animals, or should we be giving textbooks, or should we be giving deworming pills or anti-malarial bed nets? Um, and they they came in with a very rigorous focus on quantification and, you know, rigorous uh, evaluation and trying to see, like, how can we really save the most lives on a per dollar basis? And then trying to reallocate funding towards those most efficacious uh, projects. And then in recent years, they've kind of been very focused both on sort of the, the long-term future of humanity that, uh, you know, if we have a engineered pandemic that wipes out all of humanity, that will in fact be very bad. And if you uh, can prevent that, you know, with funding, then that ends up being very cost effective on a per dollar basis. Um, and policy is, I think, a very important uh, means to getting towards um, some of those those goals. And so we sort of look at um, effective altruism as just being a, a useful framework for thinking about these issues. They've kind of um, helped coin the, this framework that's been very influential for us in thinking about issues that are significant, um, tractable and then neglected. And so that's kind of the framework we're trying to use um, as we analyze what, what issue should we be putting our, the most of our attention uh, behind. You come out with the Institute for Progress, and then immediately after that, we basically go back to the Cold War and 1970s type of <laughs> energy crisis. Do you, do you feel like the timing uh, worked against you? Or do you think maybe these particular types of crises that you're you know, your sort of policy framework, your analytical framework, have something to, you know, to bring to the table to, to address these types of issues, too, that don't seem inherently all that future oriented. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely feels like a like a throwback to, to the 70s and to the 80s, uh, especially, you know, 
inflation, oil crises, yeah, conflict with uh, the Soviet Union or Russia. Um, I do think, though, there's an interesting thread to pull out from this, um, less in, in the specifics of what's happening um, in the, the, the crisis of Ukraine, but in, in more of the international response to it. Uh, you've seen sort of a, a mobilization um, and a sort of turnaround of a lot of European uh, nations, especially, you know, Germany suddenly pledges to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Uh, There's suddenly, uh, you know, very strong commitments to uh, buy 80% less natural gas from Russia this year and to phase it off, you know, within the next decade or so. Um, the United States is suddenly willing to, you know, find uh, political momentum for different kinds of uh, clean energy investments, or at least getting more attention now. And, and so there's something interesting to this idea that, um, in the same way that I think COVID revealed, we were able to suddenly do things much faster and on a bigger scale when we were faced with this crisis. And now Europe seems to be doing the same thing when they're faced with this, this you know, Ukrainian crisis. And so um, that sort of leads to the question of, could we just be doing this all the time? Could we, you know, be uh, moving fast? Could we be uh, funding, you know, exciting investments in clean energy or mRNA vaccines or whatnot without a crisis? Um, that definitely sums to be something about the fact that we we become maybe a slightly better version of ourselves when when we suddenly feel threatened or when the moment demands it. But um, ideally, we'd be able to make those those investments, you know, without the the existential crisis. Yeah, a question about that because it's one thing that's interesting too, both from a, a build back better perspective, and I, I think I'm seeing sort of the same type of. Um, I don't know if you want to call it a maximalist approach when it comes to the, you know, I guess you could say energy crisis, but this idea of uh, I'm going to have my my entire environmental wish list. And because of this crisis of the, the pandemic and now the, the war in Ukraine, that, uh, you know, let's 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 I think the expression I saw in The Wall Street Journal from uh, someone uh, from a governmental agency was we're going to triple down on the energy transition, like even though there's all this pain right now, we're going to, uh, we want to basically uh, push forward all of our demands for uh, the energy transition that we all probably, at least the three of us here probably all agree is going to happen and probably needs to happen at some point. But what's your take on something like that is, is, you know, you're, you're clearly future oriented. And I think part of that's going to be taking seriously climate change and the energy transition. But what's your take on sort of the Biden administration approach, both from a build back better perspective and uh, maybe some of the some of the policy statements coming out right now about we're not going to pump more. We're not going to drill more here in the U.S. Instead, we want to really triple down on uh, renewables and such. Is that the right approach? Yeah, it's kind of a, a tricky issue for a number of reasons. Um one is, I mean, there are, of course, uh, competing coalitions within, say, the Democratic Party or the, the Biden administration that I think are, are wanting different things. And how do you balance the concerns of, you know, uh, trying to cut off funding to Putin versus, yeah, uh, accelerating the transition to green energy uh, versus environmental concerns about, you know, accelerating uh, drilling in the near term? Um, I think it, it's sort of unfortunate that we're in this position. I think there's there's definitely a way that we we could have uh, avoided some of this. I mean, I, I think part of it is maybe um, more of a distinction between different kinds of fossil fuels and you know natural gas and oil were always seeming like they were going to be a better uh, bridge fuel uh, as we were trying to transition towards a, a, a greener climate. And so you know maybe if we hadn't treated uh, coal and then oil and gas in sort of the same categories, maybe we, we could have had like a, a beefier strategic reserve um, 
we I, there's some economists like like Adam Ozimek that have been I think tossing out interesting um, suggestions for ways of increasing domestic production of oil or or natural gas in the short term without necessarily committing us to you know 30 year long uh, increases in 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 whatever. But um, more generally, I I think I'm very excited about the potential for a number of green energy. Uh, solutions especially help us get out of these sorts of situations in the future. And I think a really major benefit of accelerating things like geothermal energy and advanced nuclear and uh, wind and solar is that we will no longer uh, be reliant in some sense on, you know, Russian oligarchs or uh, Middle Eastern Saudi oligarchs. You know, there, there's a lot of people in the world that we don't necessarily agree with on a foreign policy level that end up having a, a wide degree of latitude in the world because of their access to oil and gas reserves. And uh, that is a, a sort of a nice um, bonus towards accelerating the uh, clean energy future. Okay, let's talk a little bit about meta science. Uh, science, I think we have to say has some issues. Uh, scientific research. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But um, uh, yeah, like a lot of it uh, turns out seems kind of uh, uh, fake or unimportant or both. So what uh, what is it that um, you propose to do to make science work better? I think there's a number of strategies and, and hopefully we should we should try them all. But I would say at a broad level, uh, we need to apply the scientific method to the way that we fund science, that we've kind of grown a bit stagnant, um, both in terms of like who's getting funding. If you look at the average age of principal investigators, it seems to be getting older. Um, if you look at the amount of time principal investigators are spending on, uh, you know, grant applications and related maintenance, it's around, you know, 44% of their time on that paperwork as opposed to active research. And then as you, you know, alluded to, there's the replication crisis and how much of um, science is actually true or useful. Um, I guess I'm not a nihilist about it. I, I think there's a lot of very useful things that we can be doing and some of which we already have been doing. I think this, you know, open science movement, I'm very bullish on the idea of, uh, you know, really making um, pre-registration of your hypotheses, uh, you know, more the norm. There's some very interesting sort of open data um, software platforms that are coming out now where it will become much easier to sort of track how uh, data is being um used or manipulated during an experiment to try to make it more verifiable that, you know, you actually did the things you said you did and you weren't like pre-hacking to find something verifiable. Journals are starting to get wiser about some of this stuff. Um, I, I would say it's, it's not happening fast enough and we need more progress, you might say. Um, and the federal government has a lot of tools that they can use, um, especially given the fact that they are the single largest um, funder of basic science around the world. And so if they start um, basically conditioning, you know, federal grant making on uh, best practices for both pre-registration. Um, th th I think that could do a lot to help with some of these issues around the replication crisis and sort of play a coordinating function to help move academics and journal and uh, university departments and the actual academic journals kind of move the whole equilibrium into a better place. Um, in terms of who is getting funded and how can we help, you know, younger scientists um, get funded, one idea that I'm interested in and that we put out a, a recent paper on is the idea of a um, science lottery pilot program. Uh, the idea being that we really don't have a great sense of how well the current uh, meritocratic uh, science selection process is actually working. Um, 
And so in, in the, the nature of good scientific experimentation, um, let's create a control group. And so the idea is you would take some subset of research um, proposals that are deemed to be good during the peer review process, but ultimately don't get funded, and then include them in a lottery and fund some portion of them randomly. And then that allows you to compare and see, okay, so these proposals that went through this long, arduous process and were ultimately selected, how did they compare versus the ones that were just selected randomly? And um, that will allow you to, I think, get a good sense of like how much value is this process that is taking up a lot of time and energy actually adding to the selection? Are we, you know, finding actually that maybe sometimes this random process does better in, you know, certain margins? Maybe younger scholars end up doing just as good a job when they do get funded, but they're getting funded at a lower rate through the traditional process. Um, so I think that, that's one particular idea that I'm excited about, and both because I think would be good on the merits and because it'll sort of create. Um, better data so that we can uh, make future reforms. Early on, you mentioned the pandemic. And uh, that was actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is what, you know, give, give us some other examples of, you know, what, what from your perspective, just um, what, you know, I guess sort of future looking, what can we learn from the pandemic? And even, dare I say, what did the government do right? Because we, I think we all highlight uh, what different levels of government, what they did wrong, but are there any positive lessons or are they mostly all negative lessons of what we should do differently, whether it's a, another pandemic or another crisis? What what lessons were learned? Right. Uh, certainly, I don't want to minimize the, the lessons we've learned about how some of these uh, federal agencies uh, certainly uh, failed pretty spectacularly and we need, you know, pretty massive reform at both the FDA and the CDC and our other public health agencies to, to, to really avoid this in, in the future. But uh, in terms of things we did well, I think probably the, the single biggest brightest shining star is Operation Warp Speed um, and sort of this idea being advanced market commitments where you um, basically pledge beforehand and say, hey, if we can get a safe and effective vaccine, we're going to buy billions and billions and billions of doses, both for Americans and to distribute around the world. And that kind of certainty in demand, when especially combined with some amount of uh, regulatory um, you know, uh, trying to get you through the regulatory process more quickly. Um, that combination is actually very potent, and it gave you know companies like Pfizer and Moderna the certainty they needed to basically be able to really double down and build out the the factory and the manufacturing output at the same time that they were testing the vaccines. Which meant that when they finally had a working vaccine, they could basically just plug and play, and we had a lot of really hot um, manufacturing capacity ready to go. And it led to you know, basically a record time in terms of vaccine distribution. And so I, I think this is a, a pretty successful example. And I think part of a broader trend that one of the most um, productive sort of combinations that we're excited about is combining the purchasing power and the certainty that the federal government can provide uh, with the innovation of the private sector. And I think that worked very well for Operation Warp Speed. And uh, I, I hope that we can sort of combine that, that combination um, to to a good extent in the future. Now, I, I want to be careful and say that obviously there's lots of ways where if you just have the government um, purchasing things, uh, especially if they're getting cozy with particular you know, contractors, uh, be it Boeing or most of the national security industrial complex, uh, that can be bad. But what's nice about a, an advanced market commitment is you can basically predetermine uh, very specifically, like what are the conditions that will will meet this? And you can also, in some sense, be agnostic as to who provides it. What we care about is reaching a particular outcome. We don't have to, you know, pick winners or losers or choose a particular company to work with. And so, um, I, I think that's probably one of the the most uh, successful examples from the pandemic. And I hope that we can apply those lessons in the future. 
is is there an is there <clears throat> let me try this again is there an analogy there um, for the energy crisis either for buying energy uh, you know the, the supply of energy or even from you know the perspective of like uh, EVs you know it, it, would government commitment to buying a certain amount of of, of, of chips or what, what, whatever it may be that is required, uh, particularly as we have all the supply chain issues. Is there an analogy there that you think would help alleviate some of the issues with, the, with both the um, energy crisis and supply chain crisis, or do you think that they're just different scenarios entirely? Definitely. I think you have to be um, you know, careful about not over leveraging advanced market commitments. They, they work very well for maybe a particular class of things. And it, it's where one, you can very clearly identify what it is that you are, that you hope the end goal is. Like it wouldn't work to say, we want an advanced market commitment for a smartphone, you know, before the iPhone was invented, because you didn't know like what a successful end product would look like. And that would have been hard to judge. Um, but for things that have very clearly defined um, linear end goals, combined with very large amounts of demand uncertainty. I think when you have those two elements together, that's sort of the most promising avenues to apply um, advanced market commitments to. And so I, one area, especially in the, the climate area that I, I think makes a lot of sense would be um, direct air capture. Um, so we we know how to uh, we're, I don't know, we have a number of different competing methods of taking carbon out of the air that seem particularly promising and you know it is pretty verifiable that you can you have taken carbon out of the air so you have your clearly defined end goal um, but what is uncertain right now is how big is the market for that and to really achieve the kind of economies of scale and help you know drive us down the the, the the learning by doing curves that allows us to really ch- produce these cheaply, it helps to have very large amounts of scale and promise scale that the federal government could basically commit to buying very large amounts of you know direct air capture, uh, carbon capture. And so I think that that's one of the most promising um, early areas for AMCs. And we're sort of actively exploring that right now uh, with our think tank. In terms of the, the supply chain, it's a bit trickier. I mean, again, um, depends on to what extent you have clearly defined uh, endpoints. I think semiconductors, especially on sort of maybe the low end, um, it could have potentially made sense to yeah, have some sort of like uh, storehouse or, or you know, you're, you're buying ahead of time knowing that uh, in the event that there's a, a huge, you know, demand increase, you, you have enough uh, supply, especially for like, say, auto chips that end up being very cheap to actually manufacture um, and they can stay good for a while in like a warehouse or something. Um, I think maybe making sure you have extra supply of those sorts of things, just given how essential they are to the auto supply chain uh, could have made sense, but you have to be careful about the specific area. Here's, here's an issue that I have um, specific to pandemics, but this could have, uh, you know, uh, applications in other places too. Um, And one thing that I know the effective altruist people are really concerned about is, uh, you know, tail risk, existential risk, that sort of thing. Uh, we, it's been known for a long time that, uh, pandemics, uh, plagues, you know, biological warfare, all these are, are very serious long-term risks. And one of the ways that you have traditionally tried to protect yourself against this is by, you know, studying it. So you have these laboratories where they're studying uh, viruses and other stuff like that, chemicals, uh, anthrax. And uh, depending on who you talk to, 
uh, it's possible that, you know, doing that is actually what caused the pandemic because there was a leak from one of these facilities. So how do you know, uh, what do you, what do you do about that, uh, issue? How do you weigh that? Like, what do you think should be done there? Yeah, I think it's a pretty huge issue. Um, I mean, sort of this this larger category that sometimes calls, you know, gain of function research, although I think that that term is disputed in, in some corners. Um, but certainly the, the issue is research that has pandemic potential uh, is maybe a, a more precise framing. Um, is very dangerous. And we don't actually have a great sense of how often this is happening, where it's happening. Um, it's not very well regulated. Uh, even in the United States, um, we don't have like a, a national regulator uh, on lab safety. Um, and, and given the, the enormous potential for harm that I think you, you highlighted, uh, that seems like kind of a no-brainer. Um, in addition to, you know, all these questions of then, are we funding uh, labs internationally? How can we verify that they're actually following best practices in terms of lab safety? Um, if you guys are interested, we we hired uh, recently Nikki Taran. She's um, our senior biosecurity fellow. So I'm sure she'll, she would talk your guys' ear off in terms of, you know, best practices for lab safety or, or what we can we can do. But um, suffice it to say that there, there's a lot to be done. We're very far from the optimal situation and we're actively working. There was this, this bill recently introduced, the Prevention pandemics act um which tries to do at least some of this but we're, we're trying to make it stronger okay I, I hear that the lab security in ukraine is very strong so uh <laughs> well uh no 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 worries there no worries there. so we talked about pandemics we talked about meta science biosecurity you want to talk a little bit about the immigration thing um sure why we why we want to bring the uh the 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 German scientists of the future to the United States, <laughs> right? Uh, I think it's it's underrated the extent to which uh, the United States's leadership in science and technology has historically uh, been powered and driven, at least in some part, by um, our acquisition of of very talented international scientists. Um, if you look at the the period from say 1901 to around 1933, uh, during the first you know 30 or so years of the Nobel Peace Prize, or sorry, the Nobel uh, Prize in Physics, just to, to use this as a proxy, um, American scientists were only involved in about one of 10 of those awards during that time period. Um, and in the period following, basically since 1933, we've been involved around two thirds of uh, the prizes awarded in, in physics. Um, and that's that's in large part due to the huge um, sort of waves of international talent that we received uh, in large part from, from uh, Europe. There was sort of the wave of Jewish refugees that were fleeing um, Germany. There was kind of post-World War II, a wave of German scientists through Operation Paperclip. Um, and then kind of as the, the Soviet Union was beginning to, to decline, we got a big wave of Soviet mathematicians. Um, and a lot of our, our top scientists uh, ended up either being directly from those waves or, you know, the, the children or grandchildren of those immigrants. And so um, the United States has historically benefited um, tremendously by being the home of the world's most talented um, scientists and engineers. Um, and to also use maybe another stat, um, between 2000 and 2010, um, more immigrant inventors, so so immigrants who have a patent, uh, immigrated to the United States than to the rest of the world combined. Um, and so the United States has historically been sort of this, this big international talent magnet. Uh, we've had a lot of success because of that. Um, but in recent years, that's um, been starting to change for kind of a combination of reasons. 
Um, first, other countries are starting to become a bit more proactive about recruiting international talent themselves. Um, if you look at some of our you know, Western industrialized peers like uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, Germany, um, they're starting to you know, be very proactive about recruiting talent. There, there are billboards if you drive through Silicon Valley saying, hey, are you having trouble you know, recruiting or, or being able to bring the international engineers you want into the country? Uh, move up to Toronto. You know, we have a very friendly immigration system and we have a great, you know, especially AI scene. Uh, and and uh, Canadian immigration and Canadian tech development has really blossomed over the course of the last decade, um, partially because of the failure of our immigration policy. Um, two, our immigration policies have have grown a bit. Um, I guess they, they work less for us. Like we basically kept the same caps as we had in decades prior, while sort of global population has been growing, um, and we've in some sense grown more hostile, especially over the last you know uh, four to six years. Um, and then third, there's also increasing opportunities to stay home and do research. And so uh, there's there's less of like an arbitrage opportunity in in moving from Bangladesh to the United States. Um, I think there still is one, but it, the, the distance there is less than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so, uh, but, but there's just such huge, overwhelming advantages from, from being the home of international talent. And, and there's so far that, that we could go, but we have such sort of, that is our asymmetric advantage when you compare the United States to other nations is that we are the top destination that immigrants say they would prefer to go to. And uh, I think there's a lot more we could do to both be proactively recruiting them and just simply allowing the ones who would like to live here. Um, to stay, especially if they're coming through our, you know, top-notch university system. Are there are there other sort of policy solutions um, or areas of policy that you feel like are being overlooked by other think tanks? I mean, I'm assuming there sort of is. Uh, that would probably lead you to to start the organization. What what might those um, policy solutions or ideas be that we haven't already discussed? Good question. Um, so, I mean, one area we'd like to expand into um, is sort of maybe underrated solutions to climate change, because um, obviously there are a lot of groups that focus on climate change or on energy, but um, we think there are particular approaches that don't get as much play as they they ought to. Uh, for example, one of my my last papers at my my previous job was on geothermal energy, and um, you know, there's not a lot of think tanks. Uh, there, there's a few, but not really many that are doing great work on geothermal. I think there's a lot more to be developed there, and I think the energy source has a lot of potential. As I mentioned, like direct air capture, um, next gen nuclear. Uh, again, these ideas aren't ignored, but they're they're not in the the mainstream of climate discourse in the way that we think they should be. And so I think there's there's potential there. Um, we're also very interested in this issue of sort of construction productivity. Um, one of our senior fellows and a newsletter that we sponsor is called Construction Physics. Um, and I highly recommend you subscribe. He's great. We have this guy, Brian Potter, who's got 20 plus years of experience in the construction industry. Uh, and his blog is really looking at the question of why has, uh, over the last 40 years, in real terms, um, productivity in the construction sector has actually been falling. Um, it, it means in real terms, it's more expensive to like build a bridge. It requires more capital or more labor than, than it used to. Uh, and that is a pretty remarkable fact, given the fact that, you know, for, for the rest of our economy, we're seeing increasing productivity, even if it's not maybe growing at the rate we'd like it to. But very rarely do you see absolute, you know, declines in productivity. And so uh, he's got a bunch of interesting resources on that. And, and we're pretty interested in what are sort of policy solutions to that. So those are a few that um, we either are sort of dabbling in now, but want to expand into more in the future. Yeah, one of the things we like to do in uh, on this show is often ask uh, people about movies that are relevant to their work. So I guess the the variation on that question is, what movie from the future do you think best will exemplify your work? Uh, what movie <laughs> that will come out in the future? <laughs> that, that's right. 
well, hmm. That's hard to say. Uh, you know, I have, I have a crystal ball, but uh, certainly I think maybe Dune Part 2 is a, <laughs> a movie that I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot. I love the Dune universe. Um, and, uh, you know, not all aspects of that universe, but I, I like to, to copy, but certainly I'd like, you know, the ability to be able to travel through interstellar space via the spice. That sounds, sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily like to copy their political system, but they've got a lot of cool technologies I would like. Are you for the Butlerian Jihad? Is that going to be a, uh, a policy or my, my hot take on the the Butlerian Jihad is that um, insofar as as the Butlerian Jihad was um, it didn't end up destroying the whole Dune universe partially because they had very extensive genetic modification um, of humans to then make them mentats and be able to you know do most of the functions of of AI and so uh, for for you know conservatives who would like to um, wage war on, on AI and declare the Jetlarian, but Larry and Jihad, I just want to make sure that they are okay doing the, the requisite genetic engineering to then get us to Mentats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, as we, as you learn from the sequels, you know, there's a downside to that too, but, uh, well, we don't need right, to do right. that right now. No spoilers. Um, so, uh, Caleb, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah. It's great to chat. <laughs>